0: The reading is taken from Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. It's on page 1049 of the church Bible. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. He replied, And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Richard. Good evening. Hello. Uh, my name's Jack. If you don't know me already, I'm part of the staff team here at Christchurch. I have been since September before that. I was one of this lovely lot. I was a student at the Uni studying primary ed. Um, and it's great to be with you this evening. I've been part of this worshiping community um, for nearly four years now, which is a bit mental, really. So it's really great to be with you. Um, let me pray before I start. Father God, thank you for this story. Thank you that you speak to us in stories because we as humans love stories. And I pray that even though we might know this story really well, I pray that you will speak afresh into it tonight. Amen. Okay, can you turn to the person next to you? I know it's a primary school teacher move. And can you tell them, when were you most relieved at finding something that you lost? When were you most relieved at finding something that you had lost? OK. I think mine was I was at a church fun day. Um, I was at a church fun day, and for some reason, I'd gathered, we'd gathered all the kids, and we realised one was missing. And, yeah, I know, it was awful. And, I, and in my head, you know how you get really paranoid? I was rushing around going, where is he, where is he, where is he? I'm never going to be a teacher. My DBS certificate's gone. Like, I'm going to be pulled in for questioning. They're going to think I've killed this child. He was having a poo. It was fine. Like, it was all OK. <laughs> But it's like Jesus is tapping into this relief, isn't he? This relief of something that was lost being found. And it's really important when we look at these parables of Jesus that we look at the context. If I'm um, teaching a group of kids and one of them asks me a question um, and I respond with a story, sure, you'll understand what I mean by just hearing the story alone, but if you know what the kid was asking, you'll get the full picture. And so Jesus, we'll have to look back at the beginning of um, chapter 15. Do you have it open? Um, Basically, Jesus is spending loads of time with tax collectors and sinners. And he was teaching them, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were just not very happy. They weren't happy because he was spending all of his time with the the lowest of the low when they were the highest of the high. And so Jesus responds with three um, stories. He um, talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And I I think each of these parables on their own have their own meanings, but when we look at them as a whole, we see one story, but we also see a bit of a comparison. I think Jesus is making a, a comparison between possessions and people. I think he's saying, guys, you would get so excited when you find your sheep and your coins, you get excited when you find your stuff. Why are you so surprised when I find my people? When my, when my family who were lost returned to me, why is that a surprise to you? And if actually you don't like that, you can, you can choose to be annoyed at me, but, but you're the ones who will end up on the outside. That's the narrative that I think Jesus is spinning. But we're only going to look at the last um, of those three stories today, the parable of the lost sons and we, and we know this story. It's a story we hear in RE lessons and Sunday school, and we'll read books on it. You know, there's a dad with two sons. One stays, one goes, but neither of them really have got the memo. Neither of them understand how to truly live in relationship with their dad. Because they both um, have this problem that they believe this lie is a, a lie that human beings struggle with a lot. It's the, I can do this on my own lie. It's that I can do this without my dad lie. And, and the younger son, he believes it and thinks, I can do this on my own so I can do what I like. I'll go off. I'll, I'll, I'll do my own bit. He says, he says, Dad, I would like to have your, your inheritance now. I'd like to have your money now. I would rather see you dead, basically, and have what you have. And if you're taking notes, this is my first point. God loves us enough to let us choose our own way. The father at that point has every right to go, what are you playing at? Of course not. Like, if a kid came and said something that cheeky to me in school, I would, I would not have it. No golden time for him. Like, not okay. But, but God loves us enough to let us choose our own way. He actually says, it says, he divided his property between them. That word property, that word in the Greek is the word bios, which means life. He divides his life between them. Is this just not the epitome and the essence of sin, just tearing apart the Father's will for our lives to get what we want now, for short-term gratification, for our pleasure, for what we want, because we know best, obviously, because I can do it on my own. That is, the, that is what this, this son thinks. And so he follows his desires to become an outsider. He goes from the inside out, and he leaves his family. He follows his desires John Mark Comer says that there are two prevailing desires in this world, um, one of accumulation and one of accomplishment. The younger son is desperate for accumulation. He wants everything, and he wants it now. He wants every single experience he can get. And the thing is, desires aren't always bad things. And students, I know you're going to hate me for this, because I say this phrase a lot, it's one of my faves. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. Can we say that all together? I'm going to go proper primary ed on you. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. Right, we can say it a bit louder than that, can't we, Christchurch? When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. When When our desires, which might be good things, become more important than God, that's when they become bad. When they pull him off the throne and we say, that is more important than God, that's when we've got stuff the wrong way around, that's when our priorities aren't right. So when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And so he runs after his desires says, Dad, I don't want you anymore. My desires are more important than relationship with you. And so he leaves. And and what he does basically ends up stripping him of his identity. We're assuming this guy is a a Jewish lad just because of the culture Jesus is speaking into. And so what does he do? He dishonors his father. He leaves his land. He rejects his law. He ends up working for Gentiles amongst pigs. His desires strip him of his identity as a a Jewish boy, basically, and our sin strips us of our identity too, our our identity as children of God. But the good news is that's not where the story ends. It keeps happening in this story, you think, and that is the ending, hurrah, the end, and then it's like, oh no, another bit. It's like the end of an Avengers film, isn't it? There's always just a little bit more... God loves us enough to restore identity as part of the family. That the son's sin was great, yes, and we can't forget that, but so was his repentance. He turns around. I remember once preaching on repentance, and I said, he turns 360 degrees, and all the kids just properly laughed at me because that is all the way around, and I felt like a real plonker. He turns 180 degrees, just for, just for the maths in the room. He turns around, and he faces his dad, and he runs back to him, the prodigal son is the, word we t- is the term we tend to use, is met by a prodigal father. That word prodigal, I, I looked it up in the dictionary because, you know, that's what you do, isn't it? Um, and, and these definitions just, just really struck me. Number one, spending money or using resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. That's the prodigal son, isn't it? Squandering his wealth is the term used in the NIV. I love a good squander. Number two, having or giving something on a lavish scale, that is the prodigal God. That is the prodigal father in this story. The extravagant, the reckless, the wasteful, the spendthrift, improvident, imprudent, whichever one of those words you want to, want to use. The extravagant sin of the son is met by the extravagant, lavish, generous love of his dad and they collide in this embrace And that repentance means an absolute reversal of status, he is is wanted, he is worthy, he is part of the family, he has an inheritance. It makes me think of that line in that song, in royal robes, I don't deserve. At the student weekend away, um, we learned the difference between the word mercy and grace. Mercy is um, getting what, oh, I'm going to get this the wrong way around now, stress. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's right, isn't it, guys? Yeah, some reassuring nods from the students would be lovely. Thanks, guys. Um, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So in this story, mercy is the father giving his son a second chance, but grace is him giving his son a feast. His, his return is celebrated. He's given a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a robe. And the thing is, we see this as a beautiful image of, of grace, but the Pharisees at the time would have not been impressed. They would have probably been really annoyed at this part of the story, because, you know, the law says stone the boy, stone the boy, you know, he's, he's, he's gone off, he's done his thing, he comes back thinking he can, you know, have it all. They, they wouldn't have seen this in the way that we do, but God loves us enough to restore our identity as part of the family, so he is part of the family. We are part of the family, wherever we have wandered, however far we've gone, whatever we've done, when we do a 180, when we repent and we turn back to him, we're adopted into his family. And this isn't just in this parable, the the whole of scripture, the wider biblical narrative is that of a prodigal, unworthy, unfaithful people of God running from him and coming back to find him forgiving and faithful and willing to restore their identity as part of the family. That's the God we worship. And then we think, oh, great, that's the end. Lovely, happy ending, you know, roll credits. But then the camera just shifts, and we see the older brother outside the party, you know, with his grump on, not happy. And and, and the thing is, the older brother's narrative has been tactically uh, ignored by Jesus so that he can pack a little punch to the Pharisees at the end. We love it. Because the thing is, Oh, the outsider became the insider. Missed that slide. Fun. The older son believes the same lie, the I can do this on my own lie, but he believes it in a slightly different way. The same lie manifests itself slightly differently with him. He thinks I can do this on my own, so I can earn my dad's love. I can try and try and try and try and work and work and work and work, and then then my dad will love me. He's he's so proud of being an insider because he's working, he's serving, he's doing his bit. But he's just as lost as his brother, not, not to recklessness, but to requirements. He's lost to trying so hard to impress his dad that he just becomes bitter and resentful and doesn't actually have relationship with him. He actually says to his dad, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That word slaving, does that scream of a, of a you know, father-son relationship? Does he see his father as, as his dad or his boss or his line manager at work? Do we see God as our dad or our boss? I saw this quote on Mike Pilavachi's Instagram the other day. I don't get all my theology from Mike Pilavachi's Instagram, I do promise. Um, but I really, really liked this. It says, religion is, I've messed up, my dad's going to kill me. Relationship is, I've messed up, I need to call my dad. A few years ago, um, I crashed a car. It was just just a stupid, stupid thing. And as soon as it happened, I thought, I need to phone my mum and dad. They will know exactly what to do, they'll know exactly what to say. And obviously they did, and obviously it was fine. But actually, I know that for other people, their relationship with their parents might not be like that. And they might think, oh my days, they're gonna kill me. I I can't tell them, I can't do anything, what do I do? And it internalizes and it just, it just reeks of this older brother who doesn't know his dad enough to know that he'll love him no matter what. And so he tries and tries and tries and tries just in case he fails because he's scared of the consequences. He, he, hides, he hides from his dad rather than runs to his dad when things go wrong. And, and so he, just, he has to do his best because otherwise the consequences are too much for him. John Mark Homer said it was accumulation or accomplishment. For this older brother, it's this need of accomplishment, it's this ambition. He needs to look good. He needs to always be right, because then he knows he's clear. He knows that he can do it on his own. But the thing is, that's not how Jesus does things. We we read in John 15, "'Abide in me, and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he's fruitful.'" It's not about ambition, it's about abiding. It's about actually spending time with his dad, not about working so hard. Think Mary and Martha. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending time with him, and Martha's slaving away. Note that word, slaving. And Martha gets really annoyed because Mary's not doing her bit. But Jesus says, no, Mary, you've got it right. You know me, you're abiding, you're spending time with me. The older son feels like a slave, because and, it, and and the problem is ambition. Because ambition's not a bad thing. We can have godly ambition, but when a good thing becomes a god thing, it becomes a bad thing. He spent all of his time working for his dad and no time with his dad. Are we are we running towards Jesus, looking at him? Are we running towards Jesus, looking at our to do list for him? Like, I am so guilty of that, spending so, so much of my time doing stuff for Jesus that I'm not actually spending any time with him. It's chronic. It just doesn't work. Tim Keller writes in his amazing book, if I click the thing, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. We can love, enjoy, and serve God for his sake, not for ours, not for our own self-centered ends, for his glory and not ours, to worship him, to love him, to spend time with him. He continues, this means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. What he's saying is that religion is the most comfortable hiding place from God. It's the most comfortable hiding place from God because we work and work and work and work and we, and we trust in ourselves, but then, then we're trusting in us as saviour and not Jesus. Jesus has already done it. We don't need to do it. We can't be our own saviour. Like, if I have a heart problem, I can't just read up on some website how to sort myself out. I can't, I can't do it on my own. I need someone else to do it for me. Dave T said at a Pathfinder Weekend Away a few years ago, if you're dropped in the ocean... You, you, however good a swimmer you are, you can't swim to shore because you're in the middle of the ocean. You need someone to come and save you. We can't be our own saviour. And if we work and work and trust in ourselves, that's what we're believing. But the, the good news is we have a saviour. His name is Jesus. And we can have a relationship with him. But do we appreciate that? Or, or do we do what the older son does, which is not, not really love him because he's spending so much time working for him? He doesn't have a relationship with him because he's operating out of duty. Because He doesn't know the true character of his dad. He almost operates out of fear. I have to do my best. I have to do my best because if I mess up, my dad's going to kill me. He doesn't know that his dad will love him no matter his mistakes. God loves us no matter our mistakes. We learn that in the story of the younger son, don't we? But the older son is just frustrated by this. Paul explains this well in Romans 8. This is the Passion Translation, which I love. It just pulls it out a little bit. Um, in the NIV, it talks about a spirit of slavery versus the spirit of sonship. But in the Passion Translation, it says, you didn't receive the spirit of religious duty leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. Isn't that beautiful? I could sit in that sentence for ages. We don't, we don't, we're, not, we're not in relationship with God to just sit in this spirit of religious duty you know, so that we don't really feel great because we're never quite good enough. What we have is the spirit of full acceptance, which enfolds us into the family of God, so that we can call him beloved father, because the Holy Spirit whispers into our innermost being, you are God's beloved child. And you think, well, the spirit of full acceptance, that sounds great, but it's so easy for us to fall into the spirit of religious duty. It's so easy for us to fall into comparison it's what happens to the older brother, isn't it? He's, he's so frustrated because he's like, well, my younger brother, he, he, shouldn't, he shouldn't have all this. I mean, anybody with a brother know that it's quite a natural reaction to just get a bit annoyed, isn't it? Like, I, I totally read this older brother narrative with my voice going, Mum, why, why have you let Daniel do that? Why is Daniel allowed? To, why are you doing this for him? Why, why, hello, you know, I deserve some chocolate too, like as a five-year-old. I, and I also see like kids going, Mr. Percy, why have you given Luke a sticker? Like, do you, do you know what I mean? It's, it's the same thing. It's just part of us. That, that, that's comparison thing. But it comes from this spirit of religious duty often because we don't feel good enough because we have to trust in ourselves. And so if we have to trust in ourselves, you're seeing, well, how are other people measuring up? And the thing is, it's easy for us to fall into this mindset of comparison and think, well, just God's not fair. He's got this, he's got that, she shouldn't have that. I, I deserve this bit, I deserve this bit. But the thing is, God is fair. He loves and invites the older brother back in. But the choice is there once again. He, the, the, the older brother chooses to be an outsider, It's so beautifully pointed at the Pharisees. They can choose to reject his acceptance. We don't know the ending of this parable. It just kind of stops. All the other endings seem more obvious than this one, and then we get to this one, and it just kind of cuts out. All we know is that the outsider is inside, the insider is outside, and Jesus has his hand outstretched. Come into the party. Come join the family. We don't know the ending of this parable, but of the narrative it represents, we do. We do know the ending. The older brother kills his dad. The older brother kills his dad. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, are so disgusted with Jesus and so annoyed with him for his acceptance. they send him off to be arrested and be crucified because they were so productive while while those sinners were so prodigal. Why are you spending your time with them, Jesus? They were so worthy when those sinners were so unworthy. Why are you spending your time with them, Jesus? And so the older brother kills his dad. But the thing is, it's through that death and that resurrection that we see that he loves us enough to restore our identity as part of the family. It's through that death, that he takes those bad things, which may well have been good things that became God things, he takes that on himself and those things die with him. He divides his life so that we can choose our own way and, and because he loves us enough to restore our identity as part of the family. It's a gift. This relationship with him is a gift. The two sons both saw their dad as the giver, not the gift. But the truth is, relationship with him was a gift that they both just ignored because they thought they could do it on their own. And we have the same decision. Do we take relationship with him seriously? Do we just see it as a duty, something we do? We come here, we sing some songs, you know, we try not to swear at work in the week. Or do we see it as something that we desire? We want to hungrily desire his presence. And it's something we want to pray for. As a church, I'm going to invite the band back up, actually, because um, we're going we're to spend some time now um, in response, in prayer. And there's so much we can pray for in this parable because there are so many facets. And we're going to have some guys over here um, who would love to pray for you, who would love to spend some time um, praying with you. It might be that there are, there are good things in your life that have become God things that, that need to be cut out because they're bad. It might be desires that you're running after more than you're running after God. It might be that um, you're spending so much time working for God that you're not spending enough time with God. If so, we want to pray for you. It might be that you really struggle to see God as dad, maybe because of relationships in your life, or maybe just because. It might even just be because we all have the older and the younger brother in us because we're all human. It might just be that we want to be more like the father. It might be that we just want to be more like Jesus, accepting, loving. Imagine what Winchester would look like if everybody came up and was prayed to be more like Jesus. And before we sing, I want, I want to um, dispel, I think, a lie of the enemy over prayer ministry. Because I think we can often think, that oh, I can't, I'm standing over here and I can't go up for prayer ministry because it's, it's a sign of weakness. Like everybody's going to be looking at me going, oh, where's he going? Oh, what's he done? Pray, going up for prayer ministry is not a sign of weakness. The enemy wants us to think that because prayer is a powerful weapon. Like we sing it over our kids, don't we? Prayer's a powerful weapon, strongholds come tumbling down and down and down. I mean, we can all do it together, you know. Prayers, I'm going I'm watching. Prayer's a powerful weapon. Come on, prayer's a powerful weapon. Strongholds come tumbling down and down and down and down. Thank you. We sing it over our kids because it's true, don't we? We sing it over our kids because it's true. Is a powerful weapon, and the enemy doesn't want us to use that powerful weapon. And so he says, well, going off pre ministry that's a sign of weakness. All your friends are watching. Ah, It's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. It's a sign of saying, my God is bigger than my problems. My God is bigger than the strongholds in my life. My God is bigger than my fears and the things inside and outside of me that I can't handle on my own because I can't do it on my own. And so I, I implore you, and I don't think I've ever used that word before in my life, to come and be prayed for this evening because really for us it's a joy and it and it and it just does things when we pray things happen and so let me pray um, and then we'll stand and sing father god thank you for this story thank you that when we were still far off you came to meet us in your son and take us home thank you that you love us thank you that you love us so much that you would restore our identity as part of the family, despite us wandering off, despite us running far away sometimes, or despite us not even having a relationship with you when we seem close. Father, I just pray that we can come to know you as Father tonight, that we can just check our relationship with you and that we can prioritize you over all things. Amen.